Welcome to the Sendcast. My name is Dale Pickles and I am the host of the Sendcast and I'm also the Managing Director of B Squared. If you are new to the Sendcast, then welcome. The aim of the podcast is really simple. We want to reach lots of people and help everyone learn more about special educational needs and disability. In this episode, we'll be discussing the Education, Health and Care Needs Assessment, or EHCNAs. And my guest this week is Amanda Sokel, an advocate and neurodiversity trainer. And as a parent of a child with SEN, Amanda has equipped herself with the knowledge of the law to successfully secure the provision her son needed. And Amanda now uses her knowledge and experience to support others. The Sendcast is credited to produced by us here at B Squared. We are the assessment people. We help to show the small sets of progress people with SEND make across a wide range of abilities and ages. If you're a primary school struggling to show progress or struggling to identify where people isn't making progress, then we can help. And did you know you can use B Squared's assessment software for more than just pupils with SEND? You can now assess all pupils in one system, saving you time and money and also simplifying the whole assessment process. Visit the B-Squared website or click on the meeting link in the show notes to book a meeting with me to take you through our assessment software. Let's get on with the podcast. On this week's show, we're discussing the education, health and care needs assessment, what it is and when is it needed. My guest is Amanda Sokel, an advocate and neurodiversity trainer. And as a parent of a child with SEN, Amanda has equipped herself with the knowledge of law and successfully secured the provision her son needed. She now uses her knowledge and experience to support parents and schools through her company, Navigating Neurodiversity. Welcome to the show, Amanda. Great to be here, Dale. Thank you. You're welcome. Now, the EHCNA is a bit of a battleground. You've got lots of parents wanting EHCPs, asking for requests and authorities refusing them, and the school somewhere in the middle caught up in the crossfire, generally quite hiding. That is unfortunately the way it seems to be at the moment. I suppose it's been interesting for me to watch this over a number of years now. So The current EHC needs assessment was introduced when statements were changed to education, health and care plans. And that was just after 2014. And we found ourselves in that system in 2015. So it was quite early days. And at that time, there was a myth going around that the test that qualified you for an assessment had actually changed. And As a result, we were told there was no way that my son would qualify for an education, health and care plan because he was making too much progress in school and it was all about not making progress. And that is the case. That is the case. However, that definition of progress is very narrow in many cases. And I think that's the crux of the problem. People even now don't understand what progress means. It's taken as educational progress. And so local authorities that see a child that is achieving perhaps age-related expectations academically or even exceeding age-related expectations or schools that are seeing a child that's, you know, not two, two or three years behind are saying to parents, your child isn't going to get or doesn't need an education, health and care plan, when in fact there are other aspects of progress that we should be looking at is is the child's communication and interaction skills progressing at the same level as their peers? Are they socially, emotionally progressing? And are their physical and sensory needs progressing? And those three sections and categories often get overlooked and it's all about the academic And that's where I often see the tension between local authorities, schools and parents. One of the things, if I just go back to the academic side for a minute, one thing I see quite a lot of is the level of assessment is not good enough. So, so many schools, where's your child below? If they're in year six and below, that could be anywhere at all. It's not good enough. 
But the other thing I've seen, and is a term I saw, and I can never remember it, I've only ever seen it once, and I've never come across it ever again, but it was a really good term. And it was basically something like using assessment to mask, or the way the assessment data is used, it masks the difficulties. And this was that they use the average English score as their, well, that's within the norm, and I'm air quoting the norm, therefore that child does not need any support. And yes, but this child loved reading at the age of like 13, but literally his writing ability was at the level of a six-year-old. But because his write, his reading was so advanced, it they were able to hide the difficulties in writing just by using the term his score in English. Yes. And there's yes. things like that where they kind of, it's this norm. Yeah. And that's, and that's the thing is if your child is in that norm academically, yes. then nothing is needed. That is... As you said, that's generally how schools or local authorities think it should work. Yes, and I think the the other thing is there is, on the flip side, there are lots of cases where a parent thinks that an education, health and care plan is going to get their child the support they need. And it's the wrong approach because the needs aren't complex enough. So, so an education, health and care plan is required when a child's needs are require provision. It's, it's a ridiculous, complex definition, but we'll come to that in a minute. But they require provision which is outside of what a school can provide within its normal resources. Often that means that they need speech and language therapy or they need occupational therapy or they need very specialist equipment or they need additional support in the classroom. I'm not saying a one-to-one because that's not necessarily best practice. They need additional support in the classroom. There are lots of things that children need that can be provided within a school environment without needing that extra resource. And and what is required or what isn't required isn't clear. It, It should be clear, but it isn't clear. And that's another area where I think, you know, parents and schools and local authorities end up in some tension I, th- I think around the country i think the support schools give is completely varied and there are some amazing schools where they really have inclusion nailed and there is a lot of support they're quality first they're doing this they're doing that they're doing it really well then there are there will always be the polar opposite there are schools who aren't doing things who, and I think it's those sorts of schools are probably where we have a lot of the issues around the EHCNA. Cause if your child isn't being supported in some ways, your only legal option is to try and get an EHCP to try and get that support your child needs. But at the same time, your child doesn't reach that level for an EHCP. But what do you do to try and get that school to support your child in the way they should be doing that the school 50 miles to the east is doing perfectly. Yes. Sadly, you're ab- no, you're absolutely right. And it is so frustrating because I see so many cases where the relationship between the parent and the child and the school has broken down. Yeah. And the only way that that child is going to get back into school, because most of the people I work with, the child is no longer in school. It's got that bad. And the only way to get that child back into any education is to change the school. Yep. And often that requires an EHCP because they need specialist provision or they need something a little bit different from regular mainstream because they're broken. They're already broken. And and that's that's the sad thing for me because I think if schools were better informed, knew how to support children with needs better everybody would be better off the local authorities wouldn't be getting quite so many requests there would be more money to go around and it would be a virtuous circle what we're in at the moment sadly is a vicious circle definitely i do think as we said a lot of that current thinking in a lot of schools is around the academic performance It gets really complicated. My nephew is extremely bright, so it can be way above the class averages and various things and year averages and so on. He can be miles above, but in processing speed and other things, he's miles below. So 
in theory, this is where it's like, is, is he should be challenged. He should be something appropriate to the level he is and supported there, but he shouldn't have to get up on his quality. There, it gets really complicated. But if we just come back to this within the norm and we talk about, I'm going to talk about the SEMH side at the moment, mm-hmm. especially with COVID, anxiety, all the, that is probably the biggest area of growth. Yes, it is. Which, and I know SEMH and communication are completely interlinked in lots of different ways, but I think SEMH, that mental health is a real big area. And I think unless it is really impacting their educational performance is it's not being supported. And there's always push for these mental health leads in schools, but I do think there is confusion between the mental health need and the SENCO, who's responsible and who's leading for these pupils. Mm-hmm. And Again, I think it's one of those holes where children are falling down and it's only when they fail and break, as you said, that then they get the support. But at that point, it's too late and they do require that special provision to, to try and help put them back together again. Yes, I think the I think the process is completely backwards. Yeah. So I've reached out to our local ed- education authority with an offer to go in and talk to them to see if... I can help them improve practices. That offer is still on the table. They have not yet accepted it. No. I think the process is completely backwards. I think the point at which a child, a parent or a school, approaches the local authority for an education, health and needs plan is the point at which the local authority needs to come out and work with the school to actually look at what is going on? What is the provision in place? Not just do it on a b- bunch of paper documents, but to spend, send some expertise into that school and work with them around that child to see what difference they could make while the EHC needs assessment is going on. Because yeah. if they did that, I suspect that for a large number of fairly similar profile children, they wouldn't need an education, health and care plan because the school would have learned how to meet that child's needs within their own resources. And those children typically, from my experience, and I know I haven't, you know, I I don't meet every child, are academically able children, as you say, possibly with ADHD and or autism and or dyslexia, who are struggling with sensory overload, anxiety, and other (laughs) non-academic challenges, developmental challenges, and those needs are not being met. And if those staff were equipped with how to meet those needs, then the education, health and care plan wouldn't be required. And that's that's the f- dysfunction in the system at the moment. We're, we're putting sticking plasters on, local authorities are putting sticking plasters on, rather than saying, right, okay, here's a case, let's go into the school, let's send some expertise in, let's help the staff do a better job. And that's where I'd love to be supporting. I think the big problem with that is there aren't any standards for that. There aren't any standards saying this is what it should look like. This is, and no one's, I don't think, really confident to say this is it. And then you've got the whole, the mat and the local. It gets really good. I am hopeful that the SEND and AP improvement plan, to me, ticks a lot of boxes towards what you're talking about. I'm very hopeful for that. I just, as it is a complete U-turn from where we currently are, I'm not that confident in getting there very quickly. No. But at least if we're not getting there, we do have guidance and hopefully legislation which tells them this is what you should be doing with all best endeavours and all that lot. So you have got something to hold them to account to. And also schools will have a, this is what you're supposed to be doing level going on. Whereas, yeah, from just going around lots of different schools, there are I, I come across amazing schools and I come across really bad schools. And I think the best schools are generally the ones where the Senko has become a head teacher. Mm-hmm. Whereas there are others who have come a different route. I'm not saying that this is always the case, but it is kind of it's you either have quite an inclusive school or you have a results driven school. And somehow we have to merge those two together. Yes, and ironically many of the brightest children who can deliver the best results are the ones that need the help. And if we were inclusive, the results would improve anyway. Yes. I mean, it, 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 it's 
I mean, it's frustrating, but that the 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 needs the needs assessment process can be done really well. I've worked with some local authorities who are doing it really well, and they are going out to health. They're going out to they're asking the health services that aren't already engaged to assess. They're going to social services, and they're not expect accepting a not known to us response. The, the social services are engaging with the family. So there are local authorities that are doing it really well. It is the case, as you said in your opening statement, that very often parents who make applications are turned down initially and a needs assessment is not offered. And sadly, many parents just assume that that's because their child doesn't meet whatever the criteria are. And often that is not the case. It's a gatekeeping exercise. And local authorities and schools need to know this as well, because some of them don't. That can be challenged. Yes. And local authorities are, you know, trying to preserve their very precious resources. And if they get cases that aren't particularly written in a compelling way, they will turn them down. And also, I think one of the things, this is where I think schools can fall down quite easily without realising it, is when you're obviously making this thing, you kind of, you don't have to give evidence. There's a whole, what you have to do and what you don't have to do, which I'm not going to go into because I'm never that confident. But from my personal experience, I've watched children be turned away because the school didn't provide any real evidence. Lots of things that happened in school, but it was never written down. Yes. And and you, when you hear all the incidents, you're going, no, definitely. They're going, you're going, you did write all this down. Like, no, we didn't record any of that. Well, that's not only have you failed a child in the last few years by not supporting them, you've also then failed them again by not evidencing all the things that have happened. Because, And also when it came to assessing where they are academically, they couldn't tell you where the child was. So they might just go, oh, they're in year two and they're working towards year two. Well, sorry, I don't know what that means, but it sounds like they're not that far behind if you're saying they're working towards year two. That means they're at the start of year two. No, no, he's still in early years. We'll say that then. And I think this lack of evidence going alongside, which, yes, you do not legally have to give and all that lot, but if you can literally just make it quite clear that actually there's been a challenge, we've been here's a number of incidents, here's the things we've done, here's the things we've had to do, this is a level of ability, and you provide that, you're more likely to be successful. Yes, I mean, it is an evidence-based process. So as part of as part of the process, there will need to be evidence. There's no question about that. And it's but one that, of the... That can come later. It, it doesn't necessarily have to be at the start. No, no. So at the start, the the bar is very low. So the bar is that the child has or may have special educational needs and that those needs may need to be provided via an EHCP. Unfortunately, there's lots of implied definitions in that statement, but it yes. doesn't say please give us lots of evidence because may is, is the crucial word. However, it is an evidence-based process further yes. down the line. And one of the things that I coach parents is to gather that evidence because schools often, as you say, don't. Yeah. So, you know, I encourage parents to to write up meeting minutes or confirm in an email every verbal conversation. This is what we discussed. This is what you're going to do. And keep a diary. Keep a diary. Keep copies of school reports. If any any additional provision or any anything is put in place to document that, absolutely, because schools often do an awful lot without documenting and without even realising that they're doing a lot, which is a bit perverse. And I've had parents who have said, well, they've tried this, they've tried this, they've tried this, they've tried this. And the school's saying, well, we haven't got enough evidence to make an application. So I said, well, just remind them what they've done. And they, and then they come back and go, oh, yes, we did, didn't we? <laughs> so it, it is, you're right, it, it's very frustrating when a school isn't documenting all of these things. So parents need to be part of that picture if they're in that situation for sure i think with an ehcna and an ehcp it's two separate things there is getting an ehcna and then what you're hoping is that will lead on to an ehcp so 
And some, some locals are refusing to the EHCNA, and then you might get to the point where you get an EHCNA, but then you have all the evidence, and that does not get you to your EHCP. So it is two yes. decisions which are going on. Yes, that's right. Well, there's, there's your, so there's the first decision is whether they will do the assessment, which is the needs assessment. And then the second decision is whether they'll write a plan. And then the third decision is what provision, what, what placements they will make. So there are three key things. I think the other thing that is a challenge sometimes is that schools will say to a parent, you, your child won't get and doesn't meet the threshold or won't get a needs assessment. And the, the, the challenge there is schools aren't qualified to make that decision because it's a panel decision. No one person makes that decision. Those, those applications go to a panel at the local authority and a group of experts look at them and make a decision. So if a school has a SENCO, whatever the word is, I'm trying to, you know, evaluating each individual child and making a decision, that's not best practice. If there is any doubt, if a child may have special educational needs and may need an EHCP, then an application should be made. Yes. And one thing, we did a session with Gary Freeman around the legalities of the EHCP process and also the notional funding. And what he said is, and I've got to make sure I say this clearly so I don't offend anyone, is the people you're working with at the local authority also generally want the best for the children. However, the guidance they are given and told may not always be legal and they may not or probably are not aware of that. I would agree with that. So they are trying their best. So it's not they're against you, but somebody has given them, this is, the, this, is what, this is the rules we follow and they're following these rules and they may not be aware if what they are doing is legal or illegal. Yes, no, I would agree with that. I mean, I, I encourage parents to educate themselves. It's, you know, yep. this isn't just about their child's education. They need to educate themselves. And often they need to educate others. They need to educate schools and they need to educate their local authorities. If school, I mean, you know, the, the challenge schools have, you know, you said they were caught in the crossfire. And the challenge schools have is that if they support an application for a needs assessment, and that needs assessment is turned down. The school can do nothing about it. The only people that can do something about it are the parents. The parents have the right of appeal. They can go to mediation and or they can go to appeal. In the vast, no, in many, many cases, the parents are not equipped to take that on themselves. Yep. And so they need support from the schools or independent advocates. There are lots of charities that work in this area. There is a huge amount of help if you know that it's there and you know, you know, you know how to access it. But schools, schools' hands are tied because if a parent doesn't want to go down that route of appealing and it's emotionally draining, it's tiring, it distracts people from their workplace, the school's hands are tied. What, what can they do? There is absolutely nothing they can do apart from in small letters appeal to the local authority but it's not an official appeal it's a please can we have a conversation about this appeal and so schools really are caught in the crossfire that yep. you know they, they have no power in this process at all they can submit evidence but they can't challenge decisions and i'm also going to just get our gps involved here because there is if i'm on various social media groups and there's this whole thing of who refers and the school might go, look, if you get your GP to refer, it might help. And this GP... Refer for a needs assessment, you mean? We're referring for a diagnosis. Oh, I'm talking about the CAMS route and a diagnosis for autism and things like that and ADHD. And, and then the doctor comes back, well, I think the school should do it. And then the school are going, well, it'd be help if the doctor did it. And you can go around in circles. And as a parent, you're literally, every step of the way, you literally have no idea what you're doing and you have to learn it. And there are lots of organisations like Ipsy and many others who are there to help and support. But from at that early, you have no idea what you're looking for. It's only as you get further down the line, you heard, the word, what's masking? Ooh. Oh, 
Yes. You don't know what you don't know, do you? No. So I, I would love to just remind everybody that there is nothing in the SEN legislation that says a child with special educational needs has to have a diagnosis. Yes. So a diagnosis should not be required if the child needs help because needs can be identified without a diagnosis. In terms of the diagnosis process, it is fraught with challenges, as you've identified. Many schools I come across don't feel that they they can even mention some of these labels because they don't feel that they're qualified to suggest that those the child might have autism or ADHD or whatever. And and so again, you know, then parents are caught in the middle, aren't they? Because nobody's supporting them. It's it's, it's really funny because you, you as a teacher, you probably come across this child and go autistic, and you look at the parents going, and I have no idea how to tell you. And you're kind of waiting for things to go wrong so you can go, oh, I can, yeah, he's probably, she might, have you thought about what? It's kind of that. And it is, it is almost saying they're almost taboo. Mm-hmm. They're almost like you cannot say this child is autistic unless they present it to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you can't. And I've been through this with my daughters. You said, oh, yeah. And, and as soon as I said this, the head of the year went, yeah, we thought that too. It's like. Didn't mention it. Never, never, never mentioned it. No. Because I thought she'd be doing really good, but obviously you've seen it in school, so she's not doing that good in school. And it's just that sort of thing. It's like, as you said, they don't feel confident enough in mentioning it. Therefore, they're not putting things in place to support them. Because if they did that, they'd have to mention it, but they're scared of doing that because it is still saying your saying your child has autism or is your child is autistic is still not acceptable to most people. And And to be fair to teachers... They're not qualified. Only the only people qualified to make that diagnosis are people that are qualified to make that diagnosis at the end of a very long assessment involving two different professionals. So I kind of get that from a teacher's yeah. point of view. But but for me, it, it a diagnosis like autism, and you know, so our son I mentioned at the beginning, academically like like your nephew, very able. We knew that dyslexia was a thing because his older brother was diagnosed with dyslexia, and we could see the same things. We we didn't think it was autism. However, it turns out he is autistic. And several, many years later, we've now identified that he also is, has ADHD. So there were three things going on for him that were conspiring against his academic performance and his enjoyment of school. However, all of those, all of those aspects of his personality created difficulties for him and certain behaviours in school. And that's what he needed help with. He needed help with being able to write, because he couldn't. He needed help with spelling. Whether he's dyslexic or not, I would, I would be expecting schools to say, I have a child that isn't learning to read, and or not to read, he could read, no problem, but to write and to spell as quickly as we would expect for the level of input he's had. It might be dyslexia, it might not. However, why don't we try some of the things that work for dyslexic people and they might help. I have a child that's struggling with social interaction. It might be autism, it might not. But why don't we try some of the things that work for the children that have autism? I mean, am Um, I being really too simplistic about this? No. However, teachers don't know what they don't know because they don't get enough training on SEN no, to I know, even know I any know, of this. I know, I know. <laughs> but Let's it is, change that it system is, as well, shall we, while we're here. It is, is if you have a child who's not great at spelling, it's because they're not working hard enough. It's because they're distracted. They just need to put more effort in. Then blah, blah. It's all their fault. Yes. Yeah? Now you put the label in. Well, it's not their fault. They need, but we can support them. Problem is, to get to that label, that child has to fail so much and lose all their confidence in that mm-hmm. area so much and be beaten down yeah. and then finally go, oh, there's dyslexia. Oh, okay, we'll do this, 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 and this. Child's going, my gosh, this would have been so much easier. Why, why isn't yes. this default? Why isn't this, if I'm rubbish at spelling, all of these automatically come in at the beginning? Absolutely. I mean, my, my eldest son, he... 
he was exactly that. And he had an amazing teacher in year four, an amazing teacher. And we had a, a very early parent consultation at the beginning of the academic year. And I had previously raised in year three, because we'd been to see an educational psychologist for him, that, that dyslexia had been flagged. And he said, I'm not qualified to diagnose dyslexia. He said, but looking at what I'm seeing, I wouldn't be surprised if that was the thing. And I said to him, well, we will go off and we'll see if we can get a diagnosis or an assessment and see if that's what it is. But in the meantime, if he was dyslexic, what would you be doing? And he said, well, I'd do this, I'd do this, I'd do this. He said, let's try it. And, you know, and it, of course, it made a difference. Barrington Stokes books absolutely transformed my son's love of reading. Audiobooks transformed my son's love of literacy. And, and, and none of that required any HD needs assessment because it was simple stuff that could be done in school by a teacher who cared enough to educate themselves about some of these things and was open-minded to try and experiment. And I think that's the that's the thing that's lacking in, in my experience is, is um, schools who are prepared to experiment. Why don't we try this and see if it works? Why don't we try this and see if it works? And I know, you know, teachers are really busy. They've got 30 children in a class. They've got way too much bureaucracy. I was a school governor for nine years in a primary school. I get it. And I do still think some of these things would make their lives easier in the long run. Yes, without a doubt. But that's the thing. I think there is this whole confusion about to get an EHCP, you must have a diagnosis. Or if you have a diagnosis, you're also going to get an EHCP. <laughs> yes. They are two completely separate systems. They've got nothing to do with each other. Correct. Yeah. A diagnosis is a diagnosis. Well done. It's like putting a badge on. And it's, I know it is much more than that. But in this context of this, it is you've got a badge. You've got three badges. Well done. That's great. Okay. But how do those badges impact your life? Yeah, that's the bit that makes, yeah, if you have autism. But in reality, you're managing it really well. It doesn't really impact you. And you do this and it's great. And your parents doing this, teacher's done this. And we don't, it's not really impacting. We don't need to do anything. And that's what we're aiming for. That's what we really want. You have a diagnosis. Great. We're doing all of this. Perfect. No impact. Or you don't have a diagnosis, but we think. And let's do all of this. Great. Not really impacting you. Perfect. But it's when you don't have a diagnosis or you do have a diagnosis, but you're struggling in an area and no one's noticing and no one's putting the support in, then it's starting to become a big impact. And then that impact grows. That is where the EHCNA and then the EHCP comes in. But it starts with people not making the change, that early intervention, the early identification at the start, that is going wrong. And I'm not saying if I look at it, I find everything really early on, nothing will need EHCP. I'm not saying that. I'm saying in a lot of cases, early intervention and early support can really transform, like your son with that reading, it can really transform how they view school, how they access school, how they feel about school, and they might not become the emotional-based school avoidance child. Yes. And then you're going, well, this is really bad. It's like, yes. yes. And uh, there's lots of little bits on the way, on that journey towards where we are now, that we could have diverted that child off this path. For sure. For sure. I mean, there are, there are lots of, th I mean, autism is, is a particular challenge in the classroom. Schools are so much more rigid now than they ever were. And the autistic person, because they are rigid in their look on life, generally, needs everything around them to be a bit more flexible, to be successful. And that, I think, is a, is a real challenge. And I think if we were able to find a way to create school environments that work for the, instead of working for the majority of people, they work for the minority of people, everybody else benefits anyway. I mean, a visual timetable for, for young, young children works for all of them. It doesn't just have to be for the autistic child in the class. Everybody benefits from that. Yes, so many, so many of these practices will will benefit many children, and certainly none of them are going to harm any children. So why don't we set our environments up to cater for the minorities rather than the majorities? If you set your classroom up so you are supporting 
fully dyslexic, I'm going to say the word fully dyslexic, that's probably not the best way of saying it, but fully dyslexic children who need lots and lots of support, and you have all of that in place, oh, look, a quarter of the children in my class have improved their reading and their writing. Why is that? Because they might not get to the, I'm going to say, might not be diagnosed as dyslexic, they might not reach the threshold, but they might struggle with areas, and just by putting these in, we're supporting them. What's wrong with that? Agreed. Agreed. But I do think the lack of training around SEN and things like that means that it's not happening. It's this is what I do. My norm becomes this, which is teaching to 26 children and going, what am I going to do for these four? I don't know. But my Senko will tell me. That kind of has become the kind of norm. I'll teach to the majority and we'll work out what we do with those afterwards rather than I am responsible for 30 children and I have to meet all of their needs and if I actually as you said aim for them and put the support in other children will pick out pick the bits which help for them and I know talking to Nottinghamshire when they I talked to a school which is they have lots of families at school which I like and she was telling me how it worked and I my jaw was on the floor when she was telling me how the SEN system worked and the limited funding and all this lot and I'm going how how she went no it's really good because Teachers have to be inclusive. They're your 30 kids. You have to get on with it. So you have to support them. So our teachers are very supportive and very inclusive. So we're not having the levels of other authorities who are trying to, and it was really interesting. I'm sitting there and this person's going, no, it makes so much sense that we're saying you have to support these children. Therefore, your teachers need to understand and adapt and support and do all of these things as standard, yeah, not as an add-on. No, for sure, for sure. Having said that, there are some children for whom that won't be enough. So, yes. so my son was in an incredibly inclusive school. They bent over backwards. They did everything they possibly could. The, the unfortunate thing f- for us was that he was in a three-form entry, 30 children in the class, primary school. And he was in sensory overwhelm from the time he arrived till the time he left. And that was something they really were not going to be able to change. And that was, the, we didn't know it at the time, but it became clear once he wasn't in that environment anymore, that that was for him the really difficult thing. So I think, and the, and that's another aspect of this that's quite important is that some schools don't want to admit defeat. And so they hold on to children far longer than they should. And sometimes the best thing a a school can do when they have exhausted all other options, as this was the case for us, is accept that maybe this environment isn't the right environment and then be really supportive at helping that child move to something that's more, more appropriate. And I have come across several situations where Schools don't want to say to a parent, we think we think another environment might be better, a smaller school or whatever it is. And that's not doing anyone any favours. No, choosing schools is really fun and interesting. And I do think, yeah, I've had a friend who's moved from quite a large separate junior and infant school with his children to a single form entry, rural, villagey type school, one form entry. And he says it's so different and his kids are really thriving in that environment but yet he would have never have thought about that he would have seen the other school as a better because there's lots of children lots more blah blah, blah. what how you view schools as an adult changes from the before you even look at school you think i want a school like this which is generally what you had or things like that and then your child gets there and it's and also with your children you said they can't sit there and go, you know, actually, this school is really, really loud. There's just too many children here, blah, blah, blah. It'd be much better if there's a smaller school because they don't understand that they're the only person having that sensory overload. They have no idea what it's like. at us. And that's the thing. It's not like you just get, a, you get a, he got a, a, a nine in his spelling test and a three in his sensory test that we did this week. It's these areas <laughs> which are completely not even thought of or looked at because no. it's like when my daughter was six months old, we thought she was slightly cross-eyed. And it's to do with the nose and the way it comes out and it, too much white. So we took her to for an eye test at six months. I'm going, so I don't think she's doing 
one hand going H-A-E. <laughs> How? And they had a way of testing. So, but these were experts. And But we had to go to a very specialist to do that. And it was phenomenal. Blew me away watching that. And again, the teachers, they do, they're not set up for monitoring and understanding and supporting no. anything really outside of the academic. No, I mean, it's a flaw in the whole system, isn't it? You know, teacher training doesn't include anywhere near enough sessions or information or whatever on special educational needs. I don't know if it's true, but I've heard from some teachers they did half a day after they'd, after they'd qualified. And yet every teacher is a teacher of special educational needs. As you said, you know, in a class of 30 children, there's going to be three or four or more who have special educational needs. So every teacher is a teacher of special educational needs. And if we don't find ways to improve teacher training and CPD so that the teachers we already have in, in our education system can imp- get in, you know, improve their knowledge and their expertise in this area. This is going to be a problem for a very, very long time. Someone I know went to a university not by, did the full-on teacher training degree, so not the PGCE, the full-on. And then I said, so what SEN did you do? She went, there was an optional module on SEN. That was all there was. And what I probably would say ideally is, Again, this gets to uh, a, a, a dream in the future that we don't really do SEN training because it's it's not a bolt on; it's it's threaded throughout. Yes. Apart from the legal bit around SEN and blah blah blah, that should be in there as well. But it is because yeah, I've done my teacher training and I'm NQT. I'm going to go into my class in September, and I've got a child with a tracky what? Yes. <laughs> I've got a child with what? And what's the HCP? And my yeah. what? It's okay. just all part of education. It's all part of learning to be a teacher. You're absolutely right. It, it, it shouldn't be an optional module. It should be a core part of every teacher's qualification. And it is literally, you have a very rough year, first year, trying to do everything the first time and learn it all with your first time coming across SEN. And that is literally on the 1st of September when that parent comes in and goes, right, what are you doing about my child with dyslexia? And you're going... I've got no idea because I've just found out your child is dyslexic. It's just, it is such, coming into teaching is a very rough journey. And yeah, you've got parents coming in with very high expectations. You're an NQT with no knowledge. No, it's not great. And that's the thing. SEN is, because there is a SENCO, it is seen as a bolt-on. And coming back to the SEND and AP improvement plan, in a couple of years, this will all magically change. And it it will do. (laughs) It won't take, it's a, take years. I was going to say, it, it's not going to take a couple of years. So we're now in, what, 2023? No, what I mean is the legislation will change and then seven years later yes. they'll start. It will start. That's the thing is, yes. you talked about the EHC coming in in 2014. Yes. Nine years later, don't mention the stats, local authority inspections and times and things like that. We're just nine years. We've still not got there. No. But I do think with various things they are doing, I'm hoping that bringing in the next lot of guidance, there's a lot more legislation, the dashboards, and all this lot will mean there's better holding to account. Which And new ITT, new early careers frameworks, new Senko qualifications, which hopefully are better for the job rather than leading on to money. There's lots of changes coming, and I am very fingers crossed because I am very optimistic. I like, I have to be, because we can't really go down from where we are. Um <laughs> Agreed. But it is, it's, if we go back to what we're talking about, the EHCNA, it is, EHCP is, if my child is struggling with school and they're struggling, I have to go for an EHCP. And it is kind of the only option. It is, and if you can't get one, well, when your child really fails, then they'll get one. try again, yeah. I mean, you're right. And and unfortunately, this has not changed because when, as you know, if I roll the clock back to 2015, when, when it was our situation at that time, I was told by the Senko that unless my child was in, you know, in year six, the equivalent of year two, they wouldn't get one. And that was based on a case study where a child, in, another child in the school had, they'd applied three times, I think, for this child to get a statement prior to the 
education, health and care plan, and I've been turned in every time. And on reflection, it was partly because the school hadn't done a good enough job in those preparing those applications. And, you know, we are unfortunately not a million miles from there even now. No. I think I talk to some schools because we at B Square we do assessment and generally we focus on because if you've got a mainstream track, we're we're working with the children kind of two years behind, year and a half behind or more. And in some schools you'll go, right, so how many on the SEM register? And they'll go, this many. You go, how many are they going, oh, it's about half. It's great, because there are other children on the SEM register, or there's children with EHCP who uh, other schools, you'll go, Well, that's every child in the HCP is two years behind. You're sort of going, But is it though? Mm. And or you'll say literally is oh that's everyone in the SEM register and you're sort of going, well statistically it shouldn't be, no, no. statistically, and there is that there is the whole quality first teaching is a thing which slides along, and we offer but yeah some of the criteria and that thinking is a bit old hat and it is again comes back to right at the beginning purely based on the academic performance. Yes, and also when I was a governor and, and all of these changes came in, the local authority redefined who we could put on our SEN register. And the number of people we had on that register then dropped significantly because of this new definition. And I never felt comfortable about it because the, the proportion was incorrect. The, the, the statistically... We had X number of children with statements and EHCPs as they came through. And the proportion of children on the SEM register was not big enough, in my view, to accurately reflect the school that we were and the area that we were and the history that we'd had. And, and that was influenced by the local authority saying, in, from now on, these are the criteria that you can use to put someone on your SEM register. And I do think I do think schools need to sanity check sometimes the guidance that they might be given. Yes, and I was saying I'm going to turn this. You might call it sanity check. I would check the legalities <laughs> of the advice you are given. I'm saying I'm Gary Freeman. Mm. He is a Twitter warrior. He's amazing. He, he is. That's the thing. He is a Twitter warrior. He can be quite blunt, but generally. He is always correct. There are times he's wrong because he's not got the information, but generally, if you ask him information, he looks at the law, he does all this, and he does this. He holds authorities to account, which I think is great. And that's the thing is he will literally, you can ask him, I'll work the authority, and he'll tell you, okay, they're rubbish at doing this, they're rubbish at doing that, that. But he will give you that information, and it's great. And it's quite worrying that he says, actually, on this local authority's website, they say this, this, this and this, that is all illegal. But they, But it's their way of keeping their precious reserves, their resources, as you it said. Is, it is. I mean, I had one one client who we put together the parental application for the education, health and care needs assessment. And they then contacted the school and had a conversation. And then they rang this parent up and said, we don't think you've really got enough evidence yet for this to be successful. Why don't you wait for a couple of months or a term while the school helps you build the evidence and reapply and she rang me up and told me this and I said no absolutely not they either do the EHC needs assessment or they write you officially to tell you they're not doing it so you can appeal that that they've just done is completely unlawful but you don't know that and that's the problem. No. So you literally, you have to become a warrior parent, put the war paint on, go on as many courses, learn. Don't, I wouldn't even go to your local authority, IPSI, family, but, but even then is certain courses, they might be given their experiences or what happened to them, but actually they might have gone through processes which were illegal. So starting with IPSI is a very good place to start. And there are others as well. But you and do read have... the Send Code of Practice. Read it. Yes. Get it out it. and look at it and see where it says that your child needs to be three years behind or that school has had to spend £6,000 before any additional help can be put in or, oh, I don't know, so many, so many different myth, mythical thresholds that you have to overcome before you can 
engage in this process, none of which apply. And it is, and it is as I said, is the people who are telling you this might not realise the legality. It's maybe a set of rules yeah. they've been given, which they've trusted that person about. And you, you don't necessarily know where this has come from, but that is the rules they're operating you in. You have to be competent enough to go, no, that is illegal. This is what you have to do. Here is the guy. You've got to be that confident. One of my favourite tactics is to say to parents, go back to whoever said to this and say to them, where in the Zen Code of Practice or the law does it say this? Could you tell me which clause it is? Yes, and then watch them have no idea. <laughs> and some of them will get very defensive about it. Well, no, this is the way it is. I just because it's the way you've always done it doesn't make it legal. It just means there's lots of parents who you suddenly let down haven't been aware of the law. So I'm going to wrap it up because I could keep ranting about this for a long time. And I do see lots of this where people go, I got, I got denied an EHCNA, and I'm literally going, I'm not going to dive into this because it's a whole conversation which it goes into, but it is, there is a load of lack of confidence, lack of knowledge. This, you don't have to supply evidence to get the EHCNA. The idea is we'll do an EHCNA. Now we need your evidence. Yes. It's not the other way around, no matter what they tell you. It's things like that, that you have to be confident enough, but it is as a school, if you are struggling with a child or a child is struggling in school, even evidence it if you have cpoms if you have something else whatever it is record everything so when it comes to it you have the evidence there you're not trying to bring it backwards you've got to start recording earlier so you have that evidence provision maps every conversations with parents conversations with external professionals absolutely everything you're right so thank you for coming on the show today my pleasure um, we'll be putting things, we've mentioned other things. You've given me some links as well. So, of course, you've got on your website and you'll find all of those in the show notes and also Amanda's contact details and the find the show notes on our website or wherever you listen to the podcast. So you'll find it and all the useful information. So thank you for listening to the show. If you haven't subscribed already, please click on that subscribe button wherever you're listening. And you can also follow us on social media. On Twitter, we're at The Sendcast. On Facebook, The Sendcast. On Instagram, The Sendcast. Nice and simple. And if you're struggling to show progress, if your assessment process is overcomplicated, takes too long, or you just want to see what is available, have a look at the B-Squared website or book a free online meeting with me so I can take you through our products. We have a range of assessment products to help all schools show small steps of progress for pupils SEND. And if you're a school in England still confused by the engagement model, not sure about the pre-key stage standards or anything else around assessment, please get in contact. You can find out about our online training, our, our conferences, our webinars, read our blog, This is all on the B-Squared website. And you'll find a link to the website and to book a meeting with me in the show notes as well. So thank you for listening. We'll be back with another episode of the Sendcast. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Bye.